every year we we sit down and we talk about the wish list of markets that we want to be investing in strategically, right? And so, you know, we'll go through that. We'll leverage a lot of the market research that's out there, some of the services that we subscribe to to really kind of like pare down, you know, rent growth forecasts and job versus, you know, inventory kind of ratios to really understand like, you know, where are the the markets that will outperform in the you know next three to five years, right? Because we're generally looking at getting in, repositioning assets, taking advantage of market growth, and either looking to refinance or to trade out of assets. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America, and in the world actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives, and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman, broadcasting from the very, very cold Providence, Rhode Island. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Doug Root on the show. So Doug is a co-founder and managing partner of Blackfin Real Estate Investors that manages and repositions multifamily assets across the U.S. Doug is also the co-founder and managing partner of Iron Fish Construction, which is a full-service general contracting company that provides renovation and deferred maintenance services to large institutional apartment owners, which is very interesting. We're also going to talk about that. How is it to work with institutionals? That's something that I'm also very interested in. And, you know, previously, Doug was managing director of investments with Graystar, which is, of course, a great company. He holds an MBA in real estate and finance from Cornell University, and he has an undergrad degree from Duke University. So as you can see, underachiever here. And he won a two-time All-American Award while competing on the Duke University men's tennis team. Very interesting. Without further ado, I would like to welcome Doug to the show. Hey, Doug. Hi, hey, Ellie. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And you're calling us today from, for those of us who can see the screen on the video, from Virginia. That's correct. Yeah, we're in Arlington, Virginia, just across the river from D.C. All right. All right. That's great. Can you maybe tell me and the listeners a little bit more about how you got started in real estate, kind of give a little bit more color to the bio that I just shared with our listeners? By good fortune, I actually was, you know, kind of ended a professional tennis career and went back to business school, as Ellie mentioned. And while I was there, I had a good friend of mine who was very interested in the space and I was trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do. And so started a little bit of like almost career shadowing, you know, his interests and shortly thereafter developed a passion for it and actually ended up trying to buy a couple of tennis clubs, you know, just kind of leveraging my tennis relationships and background. 
And next thing you know, you know, really kind of caught the bug, you know, during that process and really started orientating my career search towards real estate for a post-business school career. So what was your first purchase? Well, first purchase, it's a great question. Well, I wound up, you know, landing at Invesco, a big global real estate investment manager and, you know, worked on a lot of different transactions. So I think the first asset that we acquired while I was there was a multifamily property in Alexandria, Virginia, or actually right near where Amazon's HQ2 is going. So yeah, actually pretty prolific deal to, to start on, but, you know, especially now, I drive by it all the time, it's around five minutes mm. from our house, but good memories on that one, but a great place to learn and, and get my career started. All right. So Doug, let's start talking a little bit about the assets that you're purchasing. And you're very much into multifamily, which is also what we buy. And you know, my first question to you is, obviously, when you buy multifamily, we can diversify in terms of geography or submarkets, as well as asset classes. What exactly are your focuses and how do you diversify your portfolio? That's a great question. I mean, we do it by asset class and by geography. So, you know, on any given day, as we're looking at new opportunities, we're trying to find the best risk adjusted return in the market, right? And so because we don't cover the whole country today, we hope to at some point, but we cover New England through the Carolinas. And so, you know, we've seen at different times where yields and spreads seem to be different for, you know, buying in maybe, you know, mid-Atlantic, Maryland, you know, Virginia assets versus the Southeast. And, you know, as we've seen today, you know, it's almost impossible to buy good cash flow in the Carolinas, especially like a Raleigh or Charlotte. So when that compression happens, we start to look to other markets. We start to either go up or down the quality spectrum, depending on, you know, what's in favor. So for instance, you know, we, in this past year, we bought a deal in Roanoke, which is not a market that, you know, we were laser focused on, but we found a compelling basis and yield story there that was, you know, significantly wide of where other markets were trading. And so, you know, that diversification, ultimately, we got some geographic diversification because we're in a completely different submarket, but we got a yield premium to do so. And since, you know, yields have compressed there and we've looked to other markets <laughs> and moved up the quality spectrum and, you know, now focused on buying newer, higher barrier to entry locations, which seem to be have a little less pressure on them. And how do the yields compare to the older vintage? Honestly, I think right now you can almost buy a newer, higher quality asset with not almost pretty much always with a better in place yield than some of the older assets that are, you know, kind of seem to have value add repositioning opportunity. Those yields are being, you know, compressed as, you know, as that as buyers are looking to unlock the upside. So you've kind of taken the approach and select instances. Let's go buy a, a newer, higher quality asset, you yeah. know, that has a better risk profile with a little more yield. You don't have to do anything to, basically get back to par with some of the older assets. Yeah, it's not a one size fits all though, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you just said is something that we've also noticed that even assets in the 70s with a lot of deferred maintenance, not in the best area in town or in the submarket, we're trading at very, very similar cap rates to 90s and 2000 assets. And we're looking at the yields. You know, we used to be focused on 80s and maybe mid 90s vintage. And now we moved that post a bit to the newer side, 2000, 2010, 2013, because the yields are very much the same. And you're absolutely right. There's less risk when you're buying something, a newer asset. It's usually in a better location. You have less deferred maintenance. 
and the tendon base is usually a lot better and more resilient to COVID. And that's something that is very unique. I think at some point the market will balance itself out because it doesn't make sense to have similar yields on two assets that one of them is 25 years older than the other. It's abnormal. And I don't think it's sustainable. I would agree with you. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of multifamily, what do you think the future holds for multifamily? Right now, it seems like, you know, most operators are doing very well. There is a high demand for multifamily. What do you think is going to happen in the near future? I think it's got, you know, there still, I think, has a lot of opportunity. I mean, I think, you know, you the housing affordability issue, you know, is, is real, right? And I think yeah. if you look at, you know, certainly supply constrained housing markets where the housing prices have run, there's a lack of inventory of new homes. So, you know, there's, I think, still significant demand for rental housing. And I think you can see it in some of the rent growth. I think there's still a bit of a COVID lag that people are underestimating in the sense of like collections aren't what they were pre-COVID. I think there's still a lot of tenants that, you know, are not paying the rent and, you know, dragging down returns in the sector. I think that's, you know, slowly will resolve itself and improve with time and hopefully get back to normal. But I think there's going to be in the near term still a significant push to basically, you know, industrial and multifamily from the investor space and a reallocation of capital. I think there's a safety and kind of uh, inflation hedge that I think the market is seeing and, and wants to take advantage of. And so the capital flows to multifamily will continue. Valuations will, you know, stay strong. And, you know, I don't think it, there's going to be any sort of like, you know, softening of the multifamily sector. And I think, you know, you've got construction costs working against you still and supply chain yeah. issues that I would have thought would have maybe worked themselves out by now, but mm-hmm. they it almost seems like it's continuing to build between the you know, labor shortage and the materials issues. You know, there's a lot of pressure on costs. It's gonna be harder to build and then harder, you know, slower to build just from those limitations. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think that, you know, I also thought that the supply chain issue would resolve itself by now. It seems like we're not even nearing the end. And so that puts more pressure on supply and the rising costs of single family homes. So more and more tenants are looking for apartments and the demand is just growing. I think we're going to see that probably in the next, at least in the next 24 months. There's so much pressure on supply chain and labor that it's it's going to take a lot of time to resolve itself. And it's on the flip side, if you're managing a value add deal, then the cost to renovate increase and the cost, generally speaking, the higher people to manage the assets, regardless of whether it's you know, a new asset or value add, that also gone up. Insurance costs are, are going up. So there are some forces that balance out the demand for multifamily. But generally speaking, yeah, I, th- I think it's still going to be one of the strongest asset classes in the next couple of years, at least. For sure. Let's, you know, transition and talk a little bit about the process. One of the processes at your company, which is choosing basically markets, the market analysis. Can you walk me through your process of how did you select the target markets that you're focused on right now? Well, so we go through, you know, every year we we sit down and we talk about the wish list of markets that we want to be investing in strategically, right? And so, you know, we'll go through that. We'll leverage a lot of the market research that's out there, some of the services that we subscribe to, to really kind of like pare down, you know, rent growth forecasts and job versus, you know, inventory 
kind of ratios to really understand like, you know, where are the, the markets that will outperform in the you know next three to five years, right? Because we're generally looking at getting in, repositioning assets, taking advantage of market growth and either looking to refinance or to trade out of assets. And so so we do all that. And then at the end of the day, you need the deals to line up with the strategy, right? And so then, you know, that's kind of our top down. And then, you know, then we're very like opportunity driven, right? So we're looking for disconnections in the market and with ownership and with operations. And so we may have like, you know, the best laid out plan that we want to buy in Raleigh, but everybody else is reading the same forecast. And then you, you get into it and the risk adjusted return doesn't feel as good. And so then we're trying to find the best risk adjusted return, right? And but with good fundamentals. So it sometimes veers off course from, you know, here's the five locations I want to buy in and we might be able to buy in three of them and maybe have yeah. to wait <laughs> to buy in the other two, just given market fundamentals and capital flows. Have you changed your criteria over the years? Were there any parameters that you were looking at or focused on that you are not focused on today? I would say where we were probably more primary market focused early on. I think, you know, we've we've had a lot of success in the secondary and tertiary markets, right? Finding operational efficiencies or just kind of like absentee ownership, right? I mean, and so I think we'll continue to focus there. And I think the other strategy shift where we are in the cycle, as I kind of alluded to, is just, you know, we're focused on buying some newer assets, right? Where we see like a lot of momentum and leasing or coming off a lease up that, you know, maybe a COVID lease up is not an ideal, you know, situation, right? And so seeing that there's a lot of, you know, momentum behind the leasing trends. And so we're looking at more of those opportunities than we did before and, and focused on quality and quality locations where we can. All right. I wanted to ask you, you know, when we were transitioning to the strategy part of our discussion about running two companies and you do run two companies at the same time, what made you choose to open your second business that focuses on general contracting? Yes, we have a lot of life has has to do with luck and timing. And so we had, you know, just started to get Blackfin ramped up. We had bought a couple of assets and, you know, with heavy renovation components. And so I've spent a lot of my career in that space and understand it well, but at the same time, you know, don't have the capacity or bandwidth to be out, you know, leveling bids mm. and building scopes of work. And so, you know, we started to feel out the market of like, who is that key hire who's going to be running that part of our business, right? Knowing that if we are successful and we can grow a meaningful portfolio, there's going to be more and more renovations work and, you know, the assets have deferred maintenance needs and, you know, and there's always the inevitable kind of issues that come up as an owner, right? On the physical side that you need to tend to. And so, you know, having a good construction mind in our organization was important. I happen to, you know, have a relationship with my now business partner, Forrest Dalton from, you know, back in past career. And we got to talking about who that key hire was. And one thing led to another. And next thing you know, we had an opportunity to really partner up and bring on who I would, you know, I kind of refer to him in as we're talking to clients and whatnot as the Tom Brady of multifamily renovations. And he's really, yeah, he's, he's really, you know, one of the best in the business, best that I've ever worked with. And so we felt like we could add a lot of value on the relationship side, make introducing him to clients that he hadn't worked with. And he'd, you know, been doing institutional or servicing institutional clients, you know, his whole, whole career and also help run the business, which, you know, as you can imagine, as it scales, we're now licensed in 
almost every state east of the Mississippi and into Texas as far west as Omaha. And so, you know, as that scales, there's a lot of paperwork and a lot of, you know, kind of strategy behind running that business. And I think we can offer a lot on the execution side and, you know, complement his construction expertise. And so it's been a great formula. We've now, you know, over a hundred clients and there are a lot of the oh, wow. know, big publicly traded REITs, a lot of small regional players. It really was become a big opportunity and, and business for us. But it's there's a lot of synergies between what we do, right? When we can offer a lot to our clients just because we you know, thought about the renovations as owners. We've dialed in scope that can, you know, help them lower their costs by buying the best materials, highest quality materials with the lowest possible price. And it's been a pretty good formula, I think, for everyone, both you know, our clients and for our investors as well. And when you're servicing investors as a contractor, is there a major difference from your experience between working with a sponsor or private company and working with an institutional client? It depends on the group. There's certainly, you know, private groups that run institutional type businesses. You know, the smaller owners that really think like institutions, they just have smaller portfolios or they're more regional in nature or haven't taken it to the next level. And they have the infrastructure in place where they truly have project management teams and really get it. And then you have the smaller, more like kind of startup type groups that, you know, don't necessarily have the construction expertise in-house. And so that can be good and bad, right? You know, some will, you know, rely on us heavily and, you know, we can help steer the ship and others are more coaching involved, right? And, you know, you have to, any, you know, client relationship have to manage expectations accordingly. All right. And the last question that I have around running multiple companies would you build it differently today? I mean, it's running two companies at the same time. I'm running one company and I can tell you it's it's not easy. It's hard. I can't even imagine. You've got this business as well, right? So. <laughs> well, in a sense, but it's all part of one business. So running two businesses and it can be perhaps, you know, the contracting business is kind of an extension of the main business. But I'm curious to hear if there's anything that you would do differently because I'm sure it's not an easy task to manage two companies. Yeah, it is. I mean, well, one of the things, I mean, they're separately branded, right? Which, mm -hmm. you know, is fine in some ways. I think it's good, like distinction between the two brands and what we do. It becomes a little confusing, right? As I'm talking to people, like, which side are you on, right? You know, you can have two, email, <laughs> yeah. two, you know, total two personalities. So I think, you know, if we could streamline that piece, which I don't think it makes sense for our business, it would make life a lot easier. But it's actually, in my opinion, it's kind of fun, right? Like, I mean, to be able to be in like dealing with two different kinds of personalities and two different types of clients, right? And actually running, you know, like two different organizations that have like similar but different personalities, I think is really interesting, like strategically and just and thinking about as an investor, thinking about it on one side and then as a really as a service provider, like how do we get better and really run a construction company like a private equity, you know, finance streamlined institutional advisor, right? And, you know, construction companies generally don't run like that. And we're striving yeah. to do it. And there's a lot of reasons why they will never run with similar efficiency. <laughs> but our goal is to try and make it as close as possible. And I think if we can do that, we'll really differentiate ourselves in the space. I and mean, our goal right now with the construction company is to be able to service all of our clients on a national basis because so many of them are, you know, investing, you know, across the country. And, you know, that is one arrow if we in our quiver that, you know, if we can do that, then you become a 
easy choice because you can you become a one-stop shop, but you got to get it right in every market, right? And that's not a simple task for anyone. All right. That's awesome. Well, Doug, we have arrived to the last part of our conversation, which is the lightning round questions. Five quick questions. I'm going to start with the first one, which is what's your favorite hobby? And I think I know what it is, but I'm going to let you answer that. I was thinking, you know, tennis, but... No. I mean, oh, really? I got, I got two fishing, you know, themed branded companies. So, I mean, I love to fish. Mm. And I, I do it quite as much as I would like. But if I, you know, when I have a day off, my favorite thing to do. So. Takes a lot of patience. <laughs> it does. It's I tried it once. It was not relaxing for me. I tried it once. It was Alaska. It was freezing and raining. And I was the only one on the boat that did not catch a fish. It was very, very frustrating experience for me. In Alaska, filled with fish. <laughs> well, and you see, and still, so I just don't have the talent to catch fish, I guess. What's the one thing that people don't know about you? Oh, that they don't know. So most people don't know that I've almost run three marathons in under three hours, but I've missed it by like 20 seconds, 15 seconds. Wow. Very close, but... And I'm like a big guy. I'm 6'3", 225. So, you know, it's not, people probably don't think I'm, you know, I haven't run a marathon in a little bit now, but most people wouldn't guess that. <laughs> All right. Doug, what's the number one advice that you have for investors who want to scale their portfolio? That's a great question. I think, you know, just really being cognizant of like, you know, diversification, you know, across asset class locations and really just, you know, I think as you're, thinking about investments, really understanding, you know, what's behind the numbers, right? As you dig into opportunities, a lot of times we see things on the surface that, mm. you know, look better than they should be and vice versa. Sometimes, you know, the best value is really, you know, you got to find it, right? And lean into it. And so I think those things are important. And then I think it's also, you know, it's really finding people that you can trust and work with, you know, that you feel like, you know, there's a lot of transparency, you know, some good or bad, right? Like you're going to, you're going to know that they're making good decisions, right? If you're investing as a third party. All right. Fourth question is, Doug, what's your advice for living an extraordinary life? <laughs> well, so for me right now, I mean, I think, you know, I've got three young kids and I think for me, it's spending as much time with them as possible. And like, you know, remembering all this, you know, business stuff is great and important, but they're going to grow up and, you know, I don't spend as much time with them now. I'm never going to get it back. So trying to get as much yeah. sleep as possible, and, you know, in a world where I'm trying to do 10 things and but prioritize them is uh, not going to get that time back. All right. Well, Doug, thank you so much for your time today. If investors or listeners want to reach out to you, where can they find you? It's pretty easy. You know, you can email me. <laughs> it's droot at blackfinrei.com or reach out on LinkedIn, but you know, I'm happy to talk to anyone. All right. Well, Doug, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Keep rocking and keep managing your companies and, and growing. That was a very, very interesting conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Elliot. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And that's it for today, guys. Be bold, be great, and create your own kind of extraordinary life. See you on the next episode.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.